Welcome to the Capital Club Radio Show. I'm Michael Flock, CEO of Flock Specialty Finance, and I'm delighted today to welcome our guest on the show, Michael Lamb. I've known Michael for at least a decade prior to his founding of Corporate Advisory Solutions. He was one of the top competitors, and he is a top competitor in this space, and we used to compete with him. And he has built, he and his partner, uh, Mark Russell, have built an extraordinary M&A business. They are one of the top leaders now in this business, sought after because of their experience in the industry more than anything else, and the number of successful deals they've done, plus the breadth of their services. Um, Michael, Michael and Mark's business covers a wide, wide variety. It's not just M&A opportunities. It's also strategic advice, strategic, uh, strategic advice to many of the other debt buying collection companies, customer service companies uh, in our market. CIS today focuses particularly on technology enabled businesses, healthcare revenue cycle management, uh, accounts receivable management, of course, customer relationship management, and also specialty finance. CIS has done over 50, over 50 M&A transactions since its founding in 2013. And prior to its founding, of course, Michael was a director at Calkin Ginsburg, one of the original M&A firms, another leader in the ARM industry. So Michael, I noticed in your bio, you graduated from American University with a degree in international relations. So how the heck, how the heck does one go from international relations to accounts receivables management? I mean, nobody- I know, Michael, I'm, uh, uh, so I'm, with, uh, I'm with you. It's, uh, it's one of those things where I, uh, I don't know, maybe I had it in my blood or what, but I, when I, uh, when I was, younger, my family had run a debt collection law firm. And uh, one of the areas that they focused in on was commercial uh, receivables management, you know, dealing with equipment leasing companies. And uh, as a, you know, as I was 13, 14 years old, I would go into the office and hear all about receivables management and people uh, or businesses not paying their bills. And uh, it was intriguing to me at the time. Uh, when I was, I was just a kid, I was just, I, it was the whole world around debt collection was something I had not had much experience in being how young I was, but just learning about it at that, at that point in my life was a, uh, was a key driver for how I eventually got into what I'm doing now. So who taught you how to collect? I mean, 13 years old. So my uncle, my, yeah, my, my uncle, um, who was a bankruptcy attorney and still is, uh, at one point I just was, you know, he said, look, I want you to go sit with this individual in the office. And I just sat there for hours learning and processing paper on how, how you go about collecting, uh, on, those payment processing machines that sit in restaurants that people didn't pay for. And uh, it was just one of these things where you just got the knack for it. And I just, that's how I, and then I started getting on the phone and uh, collecting, uh, collecting those accounts as well. Have a knack for it. But at 13 and 14, I mean, nobody, or at least most kids that age don't develop that real hard edge that many collectors are known for. I mean, today you have such a nice demeanor. I cannot imagine Michael Lamb on the phone demanding a payment. It just is. is My, Michael, it was, you're, yeah, you're it was it, for me, I, as I started learning it and, and my uh, Dunning name at the time, I didn't use my name was Michael Stevenson. And, huh. uh, and for me, I, I really, enjoyed the back and forth around it and explaining to the business owner at that time why he owed the receipt, you know, why he owed the payment. And um, it wasn't about being tough or hard. It was just more about 
logically explaining why we were on the phone and why we were wanting to talk with him. I just always got a lot of enjoyment out of that because it felt like I was at least doing a service to them to try to help them clean up the situation that they were in. And uh, it was just something I, I really began to really get more into over time. And it was my, it was my summer job. I did it for, I think, three or four summers to the point where, you know, then I went off to college. So how do you use that experience today in mergers and acquisitions? I think every day when I'm dealing with business owners of, you know, small, medium, and large companies, everybody has a story or a reason, or I think listening is, is so important in today's environment. I spend a lot of time listening. Frankly, I wish I would have gotten a psychology degree at some point because I think about 75 to 80% of what I do every day is, uh, is, is around just dealing with people's decision-making and the psychological movements around how they make decisions when they're buying or selling a company. And uh, I really spend a lot of time uh, listening, more than I uh, ever thought I would. So really then in your mind, mergers and acquisitions are about solutions, it sounds like. It's uh, every day. I, Every day is different in my world, and you probably experience this the same way. I don't wake up and have a playbook. It changes on the dime based on a company's business financial performance changing, its operations, clients leaving, coming on board. So every day we're reacting to what's changing inside this living um, uh, business, right? Because it's just so fluid in terms of how the business is evolving when we're helping somebody buy or sell, you've got to be able to navigate that uh, every day. So it's constant change. Constant change. And and there's nothing certain every day. And and I think some people really uh, don't, can't deal with it. Uh, I think a lot of folks that are, um, if you look at people's tenure in M&A or investment banking, it tends to be more short-lived than people sticking it out for a long window of time. I think that change in the volatility, especially as markets evolve too, um, it's, it's definitely not a career for everybody. But I, I thrive on that change. I love it. It's something that gets me up every day because I know that nothing will be the same as the, as the prior day. So let's go back for a second on, on the transition in your life and your career. So as a teenager, you got into collections. Then how did you transition to, to M&A? And, and how yeah, it's a, it's a great question. So when I went to school down in D.C., I went to American University. And um, I really, the, the main reason why I went down to D.C. was I wanted to get international exposure. And I wanted to do something internationally. And I really, after being um, working in the debt collection law firm for a number of summers, I just had zero interest in becoming a lawyer uh, in going down that path. So I knew that was not in, uh, of interest on my side. I was definitely more focused on doing something internationally and doing something that had a business bent to it. And then that's what ultimately led me to getting involved with Israeli technology companies, um, because I have an affinity toward Israel, uh, being Jewish, and I just, I wanted to really help those companies get financing and establish themselves in the U.S. And that's really what got me into the business world. What then later led me into debt collection was, uh, was basically the market shifting in September 2000, you know, in, in September 2001, when September 11th hit. And that's when my, uh, my world shifted again. So it's interesting that that macroeconomic event or macro political event happened. That was a impetus then for you to move to- Yeah, the, the market in Israel dried up completely. There was no capital that was coming in or out of Israel or to those companies. And I started looking around for my next position or my next kind of 
move, at, I guess, at that point. I was 23 at the time, 22. And um, all I kept thinking about was, what do I do next? You know, because when you, when you first go through a market change or a recession or a major uh, world change like September 11th, you really don't know what to do next. So for me, I, uh, I took that as, you know, kind of, because I do like change. I, uh, I started talking to a guy locally in the DC market who said, have you thought about getting into investment banking? You've had a lot of experience writing, evaluating, you know, dealing with business plans and getting companies financed through venture capital. Have you thought about M&A? And I said, no, not really, never really thought about it. And one thing led to another, and he pointed me to a firm in DC, or actually in Maryland, called Calk and Ginsburg. And they had a focus in the debt collection space. And it was a, uh, a match made right, right there and then. Um, actually, my, my partner, Mark, hired me, Michael. Um, he was 10 years older than me, and uh, he was the guy that brought me on board. So he was your mentor, and I guess it was he that taught you, you know, the mechanics of mergers and acquisitions, valuation, and... Yeah, yeah, I mean, Mark was really, you know, he took me on, you know, because I already had new, I already had the operational understanding of the debt collection world from working in my family's firm. So I was already walking in to understanding it. What I didn't know was the M&A valuation metrics and just kind of the, the approach to how these transactions were being done. And that's what I spent years. I started out as an analyst and worked my way up over 10 years uh, to, a, to a director of the firm. So what's interesting in my mind is <clears throat> you started out learning the operational aspects of collecting debt. Then because of your interest in psychology and building solutions, you brought those skills matched them with the analytics and the business modeling that you need to be successful in M&A. So it looks like you've put together a wonderful combination, a chemistry almost, to be successful in mergers and acquisitions. It's, it's a great story. Yeah, and for me, Michael, it was just about, um, I wanted, as I got into it, I realized how I really liked building rapport and building the relationships and traveling. I, I just, I really enjoyed helping people. And I think that mindset has always stayed with me for my time there. So it's interesting because we feel the same at, at Flock Specialty Finance that you can't be just transaction driven. You can't just be a deal junkie, as we call it. You've got to build these relationships long-term and you do that with solutions. So I'm kind of preaching to the choir here, but I think it's fascinating that, it, that a lot of successful companies uh, understand that. They understand the psychology and they merge that with the analytics and the, and the math that's necessary to complete the transaction. Yeah, and for me, that was just the way I, I, I was always, I always learned to play long ball. I was never in anything for just the hope of making a dollar or whatever it was at the time. I was always making sure that I was thinking in whatever I was doing, is this benefiting them? And yeah, is it benefiting me, but is it benefiting them? And M&A, as you know, Michael, from being doing it, it's it, if you just wanna get a transaction completed here and there um, and just hope that that's gonna work, um, and not think about the long-term benefit of what you're doing. It's a very, you, you won't last very long in doing it, uh, in building a, a career in it. That's what I found. So you got into Calkin Ginsburg and you were there about 10 years. Um, why did, you know, why did you leave? Because that's a terrific platform. I mean, Mike Ginsburg has done a marvelous job in, in building that company. He truly is one of the biggest thought leaders in the industry. Uh, he's now branched out into other services as well. So, Yeah, and uh, I have the most uh, regard for Mike. He's, he's done a great job, and I learned so much during my, uh, my time with him. I think for me, um, just being very entrepreneurial, I knew eventually I wanted to do it 
I wanted to do something different and build something different than what he had built. And when I had left in 2013, the, 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 the thesis I had was that I wanted to become broader. I didn't want to just do everything in debt collection. And, and I wanted to expand into some other vertical markets and look at what we were doing differently in terms of how we staffed our culture, uh, you know, just, just all the, the, the whole workflow itself. And that's really what drove me to, uh, to, to start our own company uh, with my partner, Mark. It just, we wanted to do it and expand and grow outside of debt collection. And, uh, and that's what we did. So I guess you'd say that's one of the differentiators then? For me and for, and for what we're doing, um, when we left uh, back in 13, our focus was really around, you know, obviously leveraging our network and debt collection. But after the first year, we started doing deals in the call center space and healthcare revenue cycle management in other areas of uh, the credit and collections world, the software world and technology areas. We, we really just started moving not outside of the industry, but just pivoting into the other ecosystems that were complementary to it. And, uh, and that, that for us was really a, a driver. And it got me really excited and passionate about doing, developing our network and our skill set in other areas uh, and, and showing people that we could do things beyond just debt collection. In fact, on this note, let's look at the first slide that you developed about kind of the industry of deal making. And you can see here, I think the one on the left shows the, the volumes of deals, you know, over time. Can, can you comment on that one as well as? Yeah. So we, like you probably do, Michael, we track all of the M&A transactions that occur in these different uh, sectors uh, that we cover. And so we have a database that tracks them year over year, quarter over quarter. And for us, um, you know, you could see the trend coming out of 2000, 2019 was a gigantic year for M&A across all the different areas that we cover. Um, healthcare revenue cycle management was a gigantic, had a gigantic year, uh, the call center space, as well as debt collection. And then you could see that it fell off a cliff in Q2 uh, as a result of the pandemic and the market changes that occurred. Um, healthcare revenue cycle management continues to be a, a very big area and the growth and the market trends there are very strong. Um, and uh, so that's really what drove the activity in, in Q1 and Q2. But, uh, you know, as an example, last year, Michael, we did, we, we had a huge year. We closed 10 transactions, uh, our biggest year yet in 2019. And it looks like increasingly revenue cycle management is becoming a big part of, of your world, is that right? Yeah, about 60% or so of our deal activity yearly is, uh, is, is happening in the revenue cycle management area today. For our viewers that aren't that familiar with that, could you describe revenue cycle management? Sure. If you think about every back office function that a hospital or a physician group would outsource, such as billing, collections, coding, transcription, eligibility, self-pay financing, uh, patient registration, all of those functions fall into healthcare revenue cycle management. So actually then a lot of that is customer relationship management for hospitals and- It, it all bleeds into some of the other market segments. So there are call center companies as an example that do uh, that provide call center functions or help desk support or customer care support for hospitals or helping with getting people onto um, the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare. I mean, it just, it, it's, it crosses over to every, uh, every area you could think of. So that's the synergies, the call center function. 
Yep. There's a lot. So when you think about our world, it's people-based with a technology twist. So whether it's ARM, CRM, RCM, our clients are people-based with technology that's uh, behind it. So do you have some of the same customers then that have more than one vertical? We do. From time to time, we'll see clients that have all three of the verticals that we're in, or they may have one or two of them. It just depends on where they are and where they're at in their growth cycle. But a lot of companies that are midsize and larger, especially in ARM as an example, Michael, have, grab, have moved into these other areas because they're so complementary. So I guess then that gives you more transactions for the same customers. Is that right? Could be. Yeah, it could be. Or it could also be if we were working with a company, let's say, in the call center space and they were interested in getting into um, healthcare, well, we can tie, the, tie that in very nicely. Or if they're a debt collector that wants to get into call center or healthcare revenue cycle management, we've got the ability to help them on all those different levels all at once. So then is that part of your strategic advisory service? It is, yeah. So the M&A business for us on, on our annual revenue um, is probably about 70% or so of our revenues yearly, just traditional transactional M&A work. And then the rest of it is consulting, valuation, market research that all ultimately feeds our M&A business yearly. So I guess that's another secret to uh, your secret sauce of growing the business. You're able to keep some of the same customers, I assume, with these strategic. Yeah, we love repeat clients, right? Where we don't have to start over. So um, that works out very well for us where we've helped them. In our world, those are singles or doubles, but we do them because we want the triple or home run, which is why our life cycle of a client could be anywhere from three to five years or longer before you know, there's a, a major event at the end of it. So I guess then this helps you get over the lumpiness. And we've, I've lived it. The you know what that's like. I mean, it's lumpiness feast or famine. So good, bad, good, bad market, whatever it's in, we're always playing long ball, developing those relationships and starting out small and then leading to something big. So I guess, you know, was it, you're, I guess, learning along the way that that lumpiness can also be adverse, especially when you're getting started. I mean, Michael, you probably lived it too, like, like me. Not every deal closes as much as you'd like, like it to. You don't have that control as an intermediary. You can only do so much. So keeping that pipeline filled and being not emotional about it is another key theme for me. I, uh, I don't, I, I, I don't want to be rattled. I want to make sure I can't control everything. Um, but, and I can only do so much, but what I can control is my pipeline and how many deals and opportunities we're bringing out to, to the street for private equity or lenders to, uh, to think about or strategic buyers to consider. So when you started, CIS, I guess your focus probably initially was the pipeline. Was that it in building? My, when, when you look at me versus my partner, Mark, um, I'm, I'm definitely more of the outside guy, Michael. So I'm the guy you see speaking at trade shows, going to the conferences, <clears throat> inter, interfacing a lot. And not that I don't do the execution. I do that as well as, because I love that part of it too. I look at myself more as a hybrid because I can not only talk the talk, I can actually do the work as well. And that obviously helps whatever industry segment I'm in, you know, I can talk through and uh, explain kind of the ins and outs of a transaction from start to finish. So we're talking about deals, successes and failures, and you guys have had a tremendous record, but along the way, what were some of the challenges that you had in, in getting this new business going? Just, you know, like everything, when you're a new company and you're starting out, people are wondering after you spend all this time somewhere else, why'd you leave? 
Why'd you start a company? Are you really what you say you are? And like anything, um, I had a nice following, a very good network of clients. So did Mark and people that we had worked with in the past. And we leveraged that. You know, we, you know, for the first couple of deals we did, um, we did everything we could to um, really show how involved we were, right? That we weren't simply handing off a client to a junior person, that we were involved from start to finish. And that I think is really what led to us being referred in and getting testimonials and people speaking very highly of us in the marketplace because we did what we said we were gonna do right out of the gate when we, uh, when we started working with clients. So could you give our viewers an example of one of the best deals you've ever done and what the common denominators are with, with that successful deals and, and others that you've closed? Um, yeah, as an example, we, one of our first deals we closed was an owner of a business whose partner had gotten cancer and uh, the owner, one of the owners uh, who I had a, a personal relationship for a very long time, you know, it said to me, Michael, I, I got to sell this company. Um, it's time for me to transition. I want to go do other things in my life. I've seen my partner get sick and have health issues and uh, I need your help. I need to get something done rather quickly. And um, we were able, we were able to do just that because he was very candid, honest, transparent, whatever words you want to use uh, with his situation. And we were the same way back, Michael, we were told him point blank, this is what to expect. And here's what we think the valuation is going to look like. And um, due to his situation and that, tr that candor transparency, you know, uh, within 30 to 45 days after we signed a, a contract with him to represent him, we closed a transaction with him. Um, and in that in itself was, um, was a great win for us and for him. Uh, but for us as a new company, knowing that we had a client that was upfront with us, candid and just wanted to get a deal done. And so did we being, it was one of our first, it, it led to a great outcome at the end of it. So I guess the common denominator then was transparency, listening, and problem solving? No doubt. I mean, for us, if we didn't do that, we would never have been able to uh, get the transaction completed. But, but again, I, I, it just, in what we do for a living, being how transaction-oriented is, you only have so much time in the day. And I value the people uh, that I've worked with and that are clients or prospects that are just absolutely straight up with what's going on in their business and with them personally, because that gives us the ability to help them. Um, I've had situations that go the other way that are very, very challenging and, uh, and not fun. You know, they really, they really make you question sometimes what you're doing. Um, when, when, uh, it goes the other way and someone isn't transparent with you. So is the lack of transparency then one of the reasons that deals fail? I think a lot of times, I think lack of trust between a buyer and seller and or their advisor leads to, uh, negative outcomes in, in, in a transaction, because if, if somebody's willing to lie to you or not tell you the full story, what would they do as a partner if they were, if somebody was to buy your company? And as, advi as an advisor, you want to see a successful outcome after the transaction. And, uh, and if, if you can't get to that level of candor, is that a client or a business you want to sell to somebody else? is a question I always ask myself. So give us some other examples then of, of deals that have failed. Obviously don't mention the names, but. Yeah, um, uh, and, and, and the, I'll give you another example of one that's kind of the end of the spectrum, you know, but 
few years ago, um, we were working on a deal. It was actually an operation uh, that had a big uh, center in Jamaica, and uh, it was a debt buyer. And they were doing a lot of work in out-of-stat uh, purchasing. And uh, we actually had buyers that were on the way down to Jamaica to do the visit, to do the site visits as, you, as a part of our process is pretty customary. And um, when the buyers got down there and so did we, the doors were padlocked by the uh, Federal Trade Commission uh, because they were doing unscrupulous activities or uh, deceit, you know, deceptive practices down in their site down there. And so, those little things don't leave your memory books when a deal dies because someone couldn't be candid with you and say, look, we're, we're going through an investigation right now and we should probably push the pause button on uh, the sale of this operation and company because of what's going on. They chose not to. They kept it close to the vest and they didn't share it. So ultimately, I will never forget that uh, that uh, dynamic uh, because we worked so damn hard on that transaction for it to end that way was, uh, was, uh, was a bummer. Uh, and uh, it just was one of those situations where he wished it didn't happen. So I guess in that case, the biggest um, driver of the failure was then lack of trust, right? Yeah. I mean, I just, it just was one of those situations where, that person was embarrassed or those owners were embarrassed about the situation and uh, they didn't want to, they didn't want to come clean about it. They were hoping to get something done before it blew up. And thankfully for the buyers that had spent the time and effort, uh, it, it, nothing occurred. So I guess that's again, another example of how relationships are critical to transactions. Yes. Relationship that was not built on. I, I, yeah, Mike, Michael, you probably do this when you're lending money to people and financing groups. You know, you're interviewing and diligencing them just as much as they're diligencing you to see what kind of partner they're going to be. Um, you know, we, I, I've had some unbelievable, um, uh, you know, people that are friends for life that we've sold businesses for that I uh, do anything for just because they're good people and they, you know, they, they treated us well and, and we did a great job for them too. And I value that. Uh, that to me, as much as it's great to get the payday, um, the feeling that you added value is, uh, is so important to every day for me. If I don't feel like that uh, or feel like that about a client, it's hard to get excited about them. Yeah, I know what I, I would agree with you um, in lending money as a financing partner, the due diligence about the people and the data, the information they're giving you is critical. And it's normal to expect a positive spin. I mean, everyone's trying to make yep. their team, their history look great, but then there is a boundary when that positive spin becomes misrepresentation. That's right. And, and to me, you know, you have those experiences. I'm sure you've had yours that have been less than stellar. And for us, you just remember them. You put it away in your memory book. And I, I don't regret, as an example, working on that deal that had the Jamaica operation. I think it was a great learning lesson at the time. I wasn't saying that then, but I was, I was definitely feeling that way a year or two after that. I gl I'm glad I went through that. Well, yeah, and that's another good point that uh, if you're not playing long ball, even though you could get real excited winning, you know, the short ball, eventually that collapses if there isn't both strategic synergy as well as personal alignment, right? Yeah, I try to meet, I, I don't know about you, Michael, I, but I know we're in a weird world with the pandemic, but I, I try to meet everybody I transact with whether they're a, a referral, meet face-to-face. -face. You know, Zoom's great, but meeting face-to-face -face and really breaking bread with somebody to understand really what their intentions are is, uh, is really important for me when we take on clients. So you mentioned pandemic. So share with us 
you know, your thoughts on the impact of the pandemic, both on well, your M&A deals as well as, um, let's say, in the debt bond world? Yeah, I mean, I, uh, when, when the pandemic really hit in March, I, uh, I was concerned. And I've been through two recessions and market changes and volatility, but this is, was a whole different ballgame. And for me, I, uh, I really took a step back because in March, Michael, I don't know about for you, but most, if not all of our deals uh, were put on hold. I think there was one that didn't get put on hold, but I think all, most of the ones we were working on were put on hold. And I, I literally sat there one day and said, all right, well, this is, this is something we haven't dealt with before. How are we going to navigate through this market? And so I, I started getting on the phone heavily during that first few weeks and just talking to as many people as possible is I wanted to get market intel on what was going on on the street. And that began to lead me, led me to be able to go back with confidence to our clients and say, look, I know you want to put things on hold, but there's an opportunity here because your numbers across all these different industries, they're not going to slip the way you think they may. I think you're going to actually come out ahead. And we got our, we got, many of our deals back in motion in April, the first week of April. And since April, we just closed our fifth transaction um, uh, across all the different industries we cover. And I don't say that that's because, you know, we, you know, we were extraordinary in our deal making. I think a lot of that was timing and we do have a hell of a team of people that surround me that uh, work tirelessly every day on all, on all the deals we're working on. But I do think when you look at the pandemic and what we were going through, you had to be a problem solver and really start to figure out how COVID was going to impact valuation. And I think we got ahead of that early and planned for it and figured out what it was going to take in order to navigate through those challenges of structuring a deal in this environment. But I mean, is it counterintuitive though, to think that in the middle of a pandemic, when the world turns upside down, uh, millions of folks are unemployed, industries are shut down. Why would you think a person would want to sell a company then. I could see why one would want to buy because the, they have more leverage because the world is uh, dominated by all this fear and uncertainty. But why, what, why would a seller sell in that period? Great question. So a couple of the deals that we closed were already in motion prior to the pandemic. So the owners and the decision makers or management around those companies, pandemic or not, Michael, they were ready to go. They were ready to exit. And they had already put, we all did, so much time, effort into the deal process that, you know, it was just a function of how we were going to work through the pandemic, PPP loans, and everything else to get them closed. But then there were other situations that were happening with sellers where their performance, Michael, was actually going up because of stimulus. And they were actually, their numbers were hitting on all cylinders. And that is also what drove some of them to want to consider doing a deal versus waiting. That was a big driver for them. Where there was their performance uptick. So do you think that that force actually, on the one hand, was negative because so many people are unemployed, there was a lot of uncertainty, but collectors were working at home. And I've been told that it was much easier actually to get hold of a consumer debtor because they were unemployed or they were work or they were working at home. So the right party contact was much yep. easier. Was 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 much easier. So the, so that's why you you saw an uptick in collection performance 
which led a lot of owners. And again, this wasn't the only driving reason was because of financial performance. One of the other driving reasons was this, this pending election that's coming up, right? And what that was gonna do to capital gains and who wins, who loses, and what does that do? So you've got a lot of things at work in terms of why somebody's gonna do something in the midst of this pandemic. On the buyer side of it, it's pretty obvious, right? Um, uh, we brought in a new investor, brand new investor to the space uh, that bought into a debt buying company. And same question, you'd say, why, why does that make sense? Well, for the debt buyer, they needed, um, they needed a capital partner. They needed sophistication and technology and other things. And they needed stability. And so there was a lot of things there that also drove deals. Um, so it's, you know, we, uh, we, in a lot of the transactions, if not all of them were done a hundred percent virtually, no human interaction or face-to-face -face interaction. Better way to say it. Doesn't that contradict then your principle that, you know, it's relationships that are, uh, a driver of success, not just transactions. So how do you? Yeah, no, Michael, I mean, the only thing, yeah, it, it, it's a fair point. And the only thing that I could, the only way I could answer that is by saying that we did have pre-existing relationships where we had met, known the buyer and seller in, I would say, 90% of the, of the deals that we closed. Pre-existing. Yeah, where we actually knew the buyer extremely well, and we knew the seller too. Now, we were running auction processes for most, if not all of these transactions. So did we know everybody on the other side of the transaction? No, but we did know them and there was a comfort factor. So, um, you know, uh, you kind of work, you, look, I had to kind of move away from, hey, let's get on an airplane and go sit down and hack this out to let's get on a Zoom call and see what we can do. Is it ideal? Frankly, no. And, I, and nothing replaces face-to-face -face interaction, but we, uh, we had to work with what our clients' needs and expectations were too. So we've been talking about debt buyers and kind of the ebbs and flows of that world. Uh, there's a chart that I'd like to share with our viewers now that shows the trends and deployments. As you can see here, these bars represent the deployment volumes for Encore and PRA. Uh, that's the blue and the red. And then we, the yellow here is uh, square two. But what's interesting is you could see the second quarter results and deployments for these two publicly traded companies on the right. You can see how, how low that is relative to the, I guess, the past five years. And, but oddly enough, it's only, it's the second lowest since, not, since 2013. So what's, what surprises me is that in light of the high prices, you would think that the sellers would be selling more even though we did have that bump. And we saw it too at Flock that in March and April, you saw temporarily anyway, volumes go up and then some of the FinTech folks in, in particular were lowering their prices to get the volume to sustain that. And they did it actually through changing some of the terms so that the flows weren't just 12 months at one price, they would, they would kind of renew it or review it every right. time. So they were kind of being flexible. So you saw that happening, but then starting in May, June, the, the prices, they didn't shoot up, but they were, they're pretty stable. They may have crept up a little bit, but it's surprising that the total volumes would go down in a period which it may not be the typical recession, but it certainly is a, is a pause in business. So why do you think that the volumes in the last and second quarter were, were down that much. And, and again, if you compare it for the last you know, seven years, it was lowest since 2013. What do you think? I, the, only, the, the only trend from what we're seeing that when you look at it over the past few months is we were in such a period of transition or a state of flux 
in every industry you could think of. And the banks were also navigating their own challenges um, in terms of getting work at home, work at home set up, data security, what they were going to do with their, you know, the increasing amount of charge-offs that were eventually going to start flowing through the recovery areas. So I feel as if a lot of things like we experienced in March and April were put on hold. And there were still obviously purchases that were made. And I think that a lot of folks from when we're talking to different creditors in the marketplace, whether they're a top 10 bank or a fintech, I think you're, you're going to see a, a, you know, a spike in um, sale activity as we enter the fourth quarter here, because I feel like folks are going to really start aggressively wanting to clean up their balance sheets to gear up for post-election recession, you know, even a worse recessionary environment. Um, I mean, you're seeing every day more layoffs across all the different big industries, whether it's Disney World or American Airlines. I mean, they're all beginning to uh, lay off folks. And so as a result of that, I think you're gonna see a, a major spike in delinquency and charge-off uh, work that's gonna need to go through a sale channel versus an AG agency channel to shore up these companies' balance sheets and bring in cash. So I, I, I think that is probably a big driver for why you didn't see much sale activity or the deployments were down. Um, and I think from when you talk to the agencies and law firms, well, putting the law firms aside, they're in a whole different boat with the moratoriums, but the agency's performance was so strong meaning that the collections that were being returned back to the bank uh, or banks was strong as well. And so that may have drove them to put or slow down um, sales as a result of that too. So how long do you think this kind of weird transition is going to go on? I, I, I think the fourth quarter, you know, if we, if we look at your chart um, in Q1 of next year, January, February, I'm expecting deployments to be up significantly. Okay, so delinquencies will be up, supply will be up, therefore prices of debt will go down? I think there could be a, um, a decline in pricing just to affect, I think people with the COVID, when you're looking at just ERC and kind of the cash flows, I think people are certainly baking in that COVID effect and I think I'm watching with close eyes on what's going to happen, Michael, if there's going to be another stimulus round to consumers, because if that occurs, that may stabilize pricing, or if it doesn't happen, they definitely see a pricing decline. Okay. And during this period, do you, do you anticipate regulatory um, rules? Do you think they're going to change at all? Man, I hope so. I, I hope that come the, before this election in November, the CFPB issues final rules. The industry, industry desperately needs it, and so do the consumers, frankly. We just need to be, there needs to be less shades of gray uh, that help feed the ambulance chasing attorneys, and more black or white in terms of what they can do, what they can't do, especially when it comes to digital engagement, email, text, chat, there's got to be, um, 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 that has got to start being permitted through the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act. And if they don't come out with uh, final rules, I think people are going to move that direction anyway. Because I, when the consumer wants to communicate a certain way, what other choice are these companies going to have? So, in a way, I'm surprised because uh, most of the folks I know in the industry uh, feel that I think when the CFPB was created and two or three years after that, that many of the cowboys uh, in the industry, the practices of collections were cleaned up significantly. And, you know, we don't need any more regulations because back then it consolidated collection agencies and debt buyers who couldn't afford the infrastructure to support those regulations. But you feel still, I guess, that the industry, particularly, I guess, because of the internet, needs more regulation to 
I just, I, I, if there's anything, I don't think it's more regulation, it's clarity. The FDCPA that go governs this industry is 40 plus years old and uh, it needs to be updated in whatever form or fashion they decide to do it. It's gotta happen because um, uh, these companies need that clarity and they need to know what they're able to do versus what they're not able to do so they could plan for that and figure out how to handle their workflows and their processes, whether they're a debt buyer or whether they're an agency or law firm, it does not matter. I think that piece of it's critical. So do you anticipate then, uh, regardless of the outcome of the election, that regulatory changes will continue to tighten up? And if so, that consolidation would that continue to? Yeah, I, I, I think you're assuming we get new rules by the CFPB at the end of the uh, end of the month, you're going to probably see a huge push from technology vendors and players to come into this space or do different things, which is going to create more consolidation. Now, if Biden wins this election and Elizabeth Warren somehow jumps in and is involved um, inside his government or in, inside the cabinet, I would expect over that, over that four-year window to be more regulation um, across the board and more stringent regulation, which would lead to more consolidation, frankly. But if Trump stays in, um, then I think we'll see more of a status quo um, with more deregulation, hopefully, uh, over, over that four-year window would be our hope. You mentioned technology in a couple different contexts. Um, I, th I think you mentioned it from an operational standpoint, from a regulatory standpoint. How about from an M&A standpoint? Is technology, is the evolution of that, how, I guess, how important is that to- It's, it's it, it, when you look at the midsize and large players across all the verticals that we cover, it's becoming either the company either has it or has developed their own internal digital communication tools with the consumer or business, or they have outsourced it to somebody else and they're doing it for them. And I frankly think you're going to see more convergence of technology companies and service providers in these different industries, because ultimately it goes back to what the client I, or the consumer really once at the end of the day, and they're going to dictate how those workflows are handled. So I think you're going to see more and more technology companies, more VC oriented players exploring opportunities with companies uh, in, our, in our different industries. I think you're going to see that becoming kind of mainstay over the next few years. So you mean technology and its impact on operations or technology and its impact on, let's say, the analytics, whether it's collection or debt buying? It's going to be both because you're going to have companies that are going to continue to move down the path with data and scoring and behavioral scoring and leveraging that buzzword uh, artificial intelligence in the operations from, uh, from a robot perspective. All of those things are not going away. They're going to they're going to be kind of a new norm, which I think is going to create more consolidation, because developing, buying, utilizing those technologies, they're not cheap, and it's going to become it, it's going to strain many of the companies in the space. So I guess skills are just as important, though, as the technology itself. Is that what you're implying? No doubt, and I think you'll see. You you're probably seeing this in the debt buying world more and more data scientists more data and analytics players coming into this market ever, you know, more and more every year. And I think you'll continue to see that too. So you were just talking though, that about how technology is becoming the new norm. It's a mainstay. So in the past, technology could have been a differentiator. Are you now saying that it's a commodity? Well, it depends on what segment we're talking about. There are companies in our market that are developing their own technology and then going out and commercializing it, whether it's a robot that they're using for inbound or outbound 
first party or third party calling or the analytics that they're applying to their, uh, to their portfolios to determine propensity to pay. All of those things today are, again, if you're a midsize or larger player, if you're not thinking about the impact of technology on the value of your business or the long-term sustainability of it, I think it's, uh, you're going to be challenged to be operating a few years from now. I think you're going to need to have that level of experience, whether you own it or you outsource those technology functions, it's going to have to be there. So you're saying essentially that technology is a big driver of enterprise value. Is that right? It, it, it's becoming ever more so important. When we're doing diligence or involved in transactions, there's more effort being spent on the technology platform, the IT, to make sure that it's in position and is, has been appropriately capitalized for the next um, wave of growth. But again, back to my first question about this, if it's the new norm, even if it drives you know, uh, enterprise value, how does it drive competitive advantage if everyone else is doing it? I, I think there, it, again, it depends on the market that you are in, right? Because if you have a specialization, let's say in buying healthcare, right? You're gonna, the technology and your workflow and how you do it is creating additional value because you're a niche specialist in a particular area. But if you're just doing work in, you know, bank card, credit card, and you're buying paper, and there isn't much differentiation other than your cost of capital, well, then you're right. I mean, it's, it, it, there, how much different can you be um, other than being, you know, a better a pricing mechanism to the credited that you're buying from? Because everybody else will have the same things. So I really think it comes down to the market and the specialization that that company has in today's market. So when you say market, you're referring to uh, accounts receivables, revenue cycle management, customer relationship management. It's those three segments primarily. Yeah, but also, but inside of it, whether you're buying, if you're servicing or buying, you know, or you're working for a large creditor or you're working or, you know, credit grant or like a, Capital One or a Bank of America, Michael, or if you are, you know, collecting healthcare debt uh, from the regional hospital in Kentucky, what, whatever it is, that your workflow and how you do it and what your margin is ultimately is what you're being um, uh, assessed against when they're de deriving it, when they're figuring out your, your enterprise value. And if that technology is a key driver for it, it's gonna ultimately lead to better profitability long-term and more client sustainability. Michael, this has been a fascinating discussion, a survey of the industry, a survey of the uh, ups and downs today that debt buyers, collection agencies, revenue cycle management, customer relationship companies have faced or are facing. Um, I, I give you congratulations, you and Mark, for building a wonderful business, 50 transactions, is outstanding. Plus you're expanding into other segments that I think a lot of the debt buyers are also uh, expanding into. So before we uh, end the conversation here, what final words of wisdom do you have for uh, the, these companies that right now are going through a, a tough, tough transition in a very kind of unprecedented pandemic, but what would you, how would you be counseling these folks today? And, and you know, what, what are your final thoughts? Yeah, Michael, well, first of all, thank you again for having me on the uh, on your show. I would tell you that most uh, probably the, the key kind of leave behind is uh, keep fighting, keep keep doing what you're doing every single day, especially to these companies out there that are dealing with enormous challenges from a work at home data security perspective. We're going to ultimately get through this and these industries are gonna be even better as a result of it. And I think there's gonna be some amazing companies and technologies and other solutions that come out of this pandemic that are gonna drive the growth of this industry over the next five to 10 years. 
So I am, I'm beyond excited about where the uh, industries are headed. Well, Michael Lamb, thank you so much uh, for your thoughts on the obstacles and opportunities that all of us are facing in, in these tough times. We look forward to another conversation with you and Mark sometime in the future. Thank you. Thank, thanks again.